Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 564. The Oddball Comedy Festival continues. Uh, this weekend, which would be the 29th, 30th, and 31st, I believe we will be in uh, just outside of Detroit, Pittsburgh, and then Chicago, respectively. Go to oddballfest.com. Um, the shows have been amazing to watch. I just do my set, and then I just sit off stage and just watch, like, Attell and Burr and guys like that actually do comedy <laughs> I do my <laughs> bullshit and then I watch Burr and Attell like do the do actual comedy it's fun have you got all Chris Farley on them yet I'm like that was a pretty good set man oh totally like as they're walking by like cool guys remember when <laughs> yeah. and at midnight's back this week and it's been uh, we had Garfunkel and Oates and Pete Holmes and uh, uh, I believe Keckner's coming back this week Ooh. and so it's, good, it's a good week it's a good week and it's, it's so nice to be back it's so nice to be back on at midnight I missed it we're gone for like two weeks and it felt like months I don't like it I don't like being gone so we're back and we'll be back for a while so um, no uh, no more hiatuses for a couple months and then we'll just be on for at least another year uh, this episode is Grant Morrison who we had been trading emails for a while like trying to get our schedules to, to line up and uh, Grant Morrison is the greatest one ever. of the smartest yeah. Coolest guys. He's promoting his upcoming book of legendary called Annihilator in store September third. Um, this is a legendary heavy, yeah. you know, <laughs> a legendary sponsor with a legendary guest on a, le- a technically a legendary uh, a subsidiary of legendary podcast. We did not plan this to happen, so don't be like, it's the, yeah, get it. It's the perfect storm. You're totally all over legendary's dong because they be pay fair, the bills. Legendary's dong so good. <laughs> Maybe maybe they'll use that. If someone, yeah, if they could play that over their logo. They just have that, that crest, and then our dong is so good. I'll pitch that next time I'm in there. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, Grant Grant uh, has an upcoming book called Annihilator, which is a, an original graphic novel from... Uh, it's like a, like a six-issue series, and it's like a, it's a subversive sci-fi adventure. And uh, the artwork was from Fraser Irving, uh, who mm. did Judge Dredd and Necronauts, and so. Oh, nice! Yeah, so uh, Grant Morrison, a, w- a wonderful, a wonderful. He's guest. one of the handful of people if they started a religion. I feel like I'd probably bail on all my "We're Alone in This World" thought process and go, like, "All right, Grant, what are we doing here?" Yeah, it just is. It just also has the perfect accent. Yeah. Oh yeah. You just you just want to climb onto every word as it comes out. 
And then that word puts acid in your mouth and goes, follow me. And you're like, I will follow you anywhere. <laughs> so now we should shut up so that we can let people enjoy yeah. Grant Morrison's accent. On the Nerds Podcast number 564 with who, Kyle? Grant Morrison. Nice. It's so good. So good. Like that legendary dong. So. How dare you. <laughs> now entering Nerdist.com. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Oh, great. great. Things are going good. How long have you been in LA? Uh, we've been here two and a half weeks probably now, but we, we detoured to San Diego for the... Oh, well, of course. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, it's so funny. Uh, Comic-Con... How was your Comic-Con this year? Was it good? It was good. It was good. It was strange. It was a kind of depowered vibe, I thought. You know, I've, I've been doing it for 23 years. Yeah. So I've kind of seen it. It's like Groundhog Day, and I noticed the subtle nuances... But I thought there was a little drop in energy this year. It felt, uh, it didn't, uh, to me, that actually didn't translate as a, as a bad thing. It just felt yeah. like, it felt manageable and kind yeah. of a little more mellow this you year. You noticed it too, though. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and, and I think, um, part of it, I think, was that I don't think there were as many uh, necessarily groundbreaking announcements this year. It, yeah, it feels yeah. like last year there were a lot of announcements, and this year was just sort of, a lot of those announcements kind of mid process mm-hmm. of like they were carrying out a lot of stuff from us. It was still, you know, it was still, it was still good. Yeah, I still love it. You know, it's still like, it's like being in a Fellini movie. It's, just, <laughs> it's an unforgettable experience. Everyone should be there once in a lifetime, you know, and wander through an entire town taken over by these dream figures. It's their imagination. They become real. It's ridiculous. It is pretty crazy. I mean, if there was some weird catastrophe and then everyone just dropped dead at once in that pile and then you know you know centuries from now they were excavating yeah. i don't know if they would be able to figure out what the fuck was going the, on the new pompeii what, what, what was this civilization they were warriors yeah, they and were aliens and, and, and fairy people and they had wings and horns <laughs> and then that would yeah. that would sort of be the that that would actually be all of the examples of the species that they thought came before, exactly. and then all of human it would history. Be like the the shale. It'd be this moment in evolution where something went wild and then it ended <laughs> overnight. <laughs> but I really I loved it. I mean I I was uh, I, I I took less panels this year just because last year my schedule was so I couldn't I didn't have time to eat. It was just too much. Yeah, yeah. So this year I was busy, but not so busy that I didn't have a chance to enjoy it. Did you walk the floor at all? No, I can't do that. You can't? You just can't. Because someone always turns up and they say, please, could you sign my book? And they always say, I've just come from the Yukon. You know, I've right. heard that my dog's sick. I have to be on the plane in five minutes' time. <laughs> this is my very last chance. And of course you sign. And as soon as you sign like, a line of like, a mile long forms yeah. behind people, and you just can't escape. Spontaneous signing. Yeah, just and, and uh, you just come off a signing, so it's it's really hard to get across the floor. It can take a half hour to cross ten minutes of distance. 
And uh, this year, for the first year, uh, we had a security detail mm-hmm. after one panel, and it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I did a Boba Fett hoodie this year. I have this zip-up yeah. Boba Fett hoodie. goes all the way up the front. So you, you wear a disguise. You, you actually I did. Around. I should do that, but honestly, I'd be too self-conscious. I'd feel I would be more myself in the disguise, no matter how weird it was. It would be more obviously <laughs> me. And just uh, affect an American. Just put on, you know, just put on something, you know. I like do my Batman voice. Just so. do your Batman voice and just do... <laughs> Just do a gravelly Batman, like lose the Scottish accent for a half hour. And then you could, it, you know, it was great because I got to, I walked up one side and down the other and I, you know, saw a bunch of cool stuff and saw the Oculus at uh, the legendary booth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know Then it was, it was really nice. And I felt like I wasn't really in the market to buy anything this year. So sure. I just, I got a nice overview of the floor. Like, all right, still con looks good. Great. And then back to the panels. <laughs> it was really, it was really nice. Do you, uh, do you go out to all the nighttime stuff there? Or are you? Yeah, we do all the parties as long as we can possibly stomach <laughs> it into the, the morning hours. So definitely, yeah, we were at the EW thing and the whatever. The only one we get turned away from was the Playboy Bates Motel. Oh, really? Yeah. The, now, in that instance, are you like... Hey guys, uh, I'm Grant fucking Morrison. (laughs) Honestly, in that instance, it's oh my god, what a relief! (laughs) (laughs) Because it's one less thing you have to do. So your your first San Diego Comic International was 23 years ago. It was 1990. I missed one year, and uh, but the first year was 1990. And it was downtown in San Diego, and the, all I saw from the window, there's one guy dressed as Green Lantern being chased down the street by a gang of Marines. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't he use the ring? No, I mean, that was the tragedy, you know. He was one of the most powerful men in the universe. But, <laughs> but unfortunately, he was only pretending to be one of the most oh, powerful men Ah, damn it. You don't chase me. I'm fucking space police. <laughs> so it was kind of always see that. That's to me, is the ultimate contrast between the way it was then. You know, it was this empty street with this Green Lantern, kids sweating in terror, being chased by Marines. And now the Marines have just vanished into the crowd. You, you wouldn't even know. You would think they were space Marines. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they were cosplaying. The yeah, Marines I mean, were. That's, that's what that's what it could be now. So that that for me is the big change. It was once this one little guy standing up for the entire, you know, uh, alternative culture of course. <laughs> and now the entire town has been infected and taken over, and everyone wants in. Do you? Uh, some people are annoyed by the expansion of this culture, and I happen mm. to love it because it just means that they're. I don't know. I think the more people, the yeah, better. Yeah. I think we, it just means we were right all along and that the imagination was always a great place to play. You know, and I can see why people don't like the, the corporatization of it, to, to use the proper word. But it's, uh, that's only part of it. You know, Michelangelo created his greatest works under a very repressive structure in the Middle Ages. So it's not to say that the work isn't great. So I believe that even, even what some people would like to think of as a repressive structure can't produce brilliant work, and it does. You know, you know, across all media. Yeah. Did uh, what was what was what was comic book culture like in in Scotland in the sixties? The, there wasn't much. I mean, the weird thing about Scotland is we had a, a nuclear base right on our, our doorstep near Glasgow. Yeah. So so my my whole history is tied into this bizarre kind of sequence of, of weird you know symbolic content. <laughs> I, I grew up with a nuclear base, and my dad was a was a soldier who became a peace protester. Oh wow! Yeah. So he was he was protesting. He was jailed a few times for breaking into nuclear bases and taking photographs. The Americans moved out in the eighties, but during this period, Scotland became a kind of little state of america 
Oh, wow. And all the comic books came in along with the, the servicemen. And they came through. The first comic book store in, in Britain was called the Yankee Bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like nine miles outside my hometown. So the comics were flooding in. And we really, this culture was really big for us. You know, in the way, like, the Beatles were getting rock and roll records into Liverpool on, on the, the boats? Well, we were getting comic books in along with the nuclear missiles. <laughs> so I kind of had this ambiguous relationship with nuclear missiles and comic books and the fact that the Hulk could survive the gamma bomb and Superman could survive the, <laughs> the atom bomb. Yeah. And, it's, it, and it's interesting that on the backs of something that was probably horrifying to you came this thing <clears throat> that would ultimately be your life. Absolutely, you know, my parents were peace protesters and the bomb was scary, they talked about it all the time and in the 60s there was a, the, the, the fear was quite intense that you know someone was going to use the atom bomb. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was a big thing in my house and then in the comics it was just, yeah, we can laugh off the bomb. You know? <laughs> These guys eat atom bombs for breakfast and then have an adventure. Or you'll get great powers uh, from... Yeah, from exactly, your... so you, you could deal with that. You think, okay, if the bomb goes off at least I might grow... 300 feet tall <laughs> consume worlds for breakfast <laughs> because if I well if I understand that if I understand my old health film training when a nuclear bomb goes off you just have to get under your desk yeah and then you're fine yeah apparently most uh, most household desks are impervious to nuclear strike <laughs> that's the one it's the one thing they never count on yeah. is no no just get under the desk I mean, don't stand up yeah. you'll be vaporized yeah. but if you're under the desk what's all that lead lining yeah. in every product yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny that like kids in school rooms back then were probably more poisoned by everything in the class Classroom yeah. than the then <laughs> don't worry the asbestos will keep all that radiation out. <laughs> but now you understand the success of IKEA. What will do? No, but you go back to build your IKEA bomb shelter, and you're just like, God damn it! I got a left hinge when I needed a right hinge. <laughs> That's okay. Just get in the drawer, slide it shut, <laughs> and you can come out when the cockroaches rule the planet. <laughs> and they you will. King. All right. So have you ever? Have you ever? Sometimes have you ever actually thought through? Like, uh, I, I, I pitched a show years ago and no one ever was interested in it, but it was the idea of like, you know, what would happen if, and then they sort of did this with like life after people, but the idea of it was, you know, if humans d- disintegrated yeah, yeah. and then what would be the next species that would ultimately take over? So basically it would be like running a simulation on what conditions would have to prevail in order for like cockroaches and yeah. what if you sort of if you could map ahead you know 100,000 800,000 2 million years what what could those evolve into and would mm. they be sentient creatures or would they just be like 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 cockroach dinosaurs yeah so what did you come up with i don't know because i'm not a good scientist uh, <laughs> clearly you're not taking the plan that that's what the lizard people already here want us to <laughs> yeah. do my feeling is that it would probably be some type of you know, with nothing to, you know, with if, if a lot of the apex predators were taken out, then mm-hmm. we, you would probably get, like, really large, like, crazy insectoid with complex forms of communication, but maybe not necessarily that, sentient in that the way that we mind. think of. Yeah, something. I don't know. That basically the Earth would just be like a giant fucking garbage heap. But they'd fight eternal battles with super sentient rats. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Because, you know, those two are going to survive, so it'll be one half of the Earth. It'll be like Jack Kirby overnight, oh, at least in geological terms. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, I don't know. There must be Somewhere on the internet, there must be some type of a catastrophe simulation. There's got to be. And imagine the planet turns, like, maybe every five years, so the ones who were in the light are stuck in the darkness for five years. Oh. How, did, how does their morals and their values change in this eternal war? Honestly, this is the biggest series ever. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Rats v. cockroaches? You've, you've, you've discovered 
the, the, it's the motherlode. Why aren't we, you know, then do rats, do rats walk upright? Do they become hairless? Do they become, you know, like... No, the, there's dozens of different kinds. They've super, like, they've worked all out. The, the insects specialize, but the rats diversify. Oh, <laughs> shit. Do the rats end up, dis- do the rats uh, end up developing some type of, you know, like flying squirrel thing where they can catch updrafts and, and, uh, and float and be the airborne? military subset of the rat monsters, barely too. begun... To imagine what these rats can do, <laughs> and I think we have to leave it. To, I have to believe it to the audience. To imagine. I think Star, Starship Trooper, Starship Trooper was probably a good glimpse into what what yeah. that might look like. Into what rats could look like in the future. <laughs> People, are you? Uh, I mean, do you? Do you like coming? Or like, what, what's your preference? Would you Would you rather uh, create your own titles, or do you like coming into a pre existing? franchise and saying like well here's what I want to do with this character here's what I want to do with Batman or here's what I want to well obviously I love demoing stuff and I've always done it kind of side by side but there's something exciting about going into these universes you know weird I find them really quite bizarre these narrative universes that have been made over decades by lots of different creators so to go in there and to take something like Superman and to make him express something you know like the death of my father or how I feel about this or to do that with Superman, to know that that will endure even if my other stuff gets forgotten, which I imagine it will within <laughs> two generations. But you've done something with Superman, so you're kind of making a a compact with something that I honestly think is quite... There's something unusual going on there. There's, that energy keeps being picked up by successive generations and made more convincing using special effects. So Superman, Superman lasts longer than all of us. He's now pretty old, you know. He's outlived a lot of war veterans. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of interesting to think yeah. that essentially Superman carries, uh, or at least this iteration of Superman carries your emotional DNA. Like he's up, it's sort of like you're mine, Superman, and then you infuse him with, you know, like you imbue him with Grant Morrison esque yeah, properties. Yeah, and there's a little bit of that, and everyone's Christopher Reeve, whoever's tackled that character, kind of goes in there. So I find that that's kind of cool. I like the notion of going in there, and there's also you're having to abide by the rules of these universes. Yeah. And they work in a certain way. No one can really die. You know, you can do your best to kill off Robin, but he'll be back <laughs> 10 issues later. You can, it, you know, death is meaningless in these universes. So you have to think, okay, it's not like the real world. It's its own thing. It's its own weird territory. Yeah. So that kind of absolutely fascinates me. Just going in there and playing by the rules, like having given a 12-bar blues and seeing... Well, am I Bill Haley or Jimi Hendrix? You know, how, right. how am I going to play the rules here? How am I going to just test the boundaries of what this is? But that's real. It's a lot of fun doing that stuff. You know, it's like getting a role. I guess if you're an actor, getting a role to play, you're working within the boundaries of the role, but you're infusing it with your own personality. I mean, it's you know, it's going to be interesting to see. Superman's one of those characters that's like, well, he pretty much can do whatever the fuck he wants. You know, so how do we? You know, so it's interesting to see him as a well let's let's give him some human emotional <clears throat> qualities and give him struggles that people yeah. have and that and those are going to be his his a lot of his big problems because he you know essentially he can almost do anything yeah but i think i mean the problem is that people literalize superman you know because they, you're so used to literalizing batman it's pretty easy Batman could kind of be real almost, you know, if a, a mad billionaire decided to spend all his money doing that. It, <laughs> he could almost get there and maybe have that career for five years before his back was disintegrated. <laughs> I, I'd give him like six days. Yeah, I'm, I'm being kind, honestly. But, but with, with Superman, people kind of think, well, if an alien actually came to Earth, what's the physics? There is no physics. The thing is totally made up. It's a product of the human imagination. But for me, Superman... I kind of solved the problem, like you're talking, is he God, he can do anything? No, he's how we feel in our dreams. 
And Superman's got a dog. He's got a girlfriend who doesn't quite get him. He's got a boss who yells at him. He's got a big old house where he sits on his own, with surrounded by his trophies and all the shit that means stuff to him. You know, he pines. He's us, but he's on a Paul Bunyan scale. Mm-hmm. And if people could only just think, no, these are big symbolic stories. Superman could never be real. That shit's never going to be real. But it works. And the, for me, the way it works, we, I did a story in All-Star Superman. One of the pages is Superman saves this little goth kid from suicide. Now, that actually saved the lives of real kids in the real world. You can go on the internet and check it out. So for me, it's like that's the only function of Superman. It's not, he can't exist in the real world. He do, he's never going to snap, snap General Zod's neck or whatever he does. But in the real world, this paper superhero saved kids' lives, and that's what Superman's made to do, isn't it? Oh, that's so, so that's amazing. So if we could see him more as a symbolic figure who solves problems in the dream world, he's not. He can never be real. But if he's allowed to fly to other planets, because in our dreams we fly to other planets, and in our dreams, you know, the girl doesn't quite understand us until we pull off her shirt. And, <laughs> and so he's that, but it's on this big crazy Greek gods level and we should just allow him to be really imaginative instead of trying to make it real it's that's an interesting interpretation I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it that way before and, and, but I never have the Superman dreams unfortunately I always want the Superman dreams I get the Spider-Man dreams. Yeah. I get I get these organic web shooters in my wrist and I get wall crawling. You get and literal Spider-Man dreams. I get literal Spider-Man dreams. Yeah, I, I always want the flying dreams and every time I try to take off I always fall down. I don't yeah. know. I usually get stuck like maybe two feet above the ground with my chin trailing across the pavement. And it's the, the worst kind of flight available because everyone's above me. <laughs> Is it more? Tell me, does this phenomenon happen in the life of a comic writer where you have a dream and you go, oh my God, that's the greatest story ever. I have got to write this down. And then you read it the next day and you're like, this is complete shit. What was I think this doesn't make any sense? No, honestly, I, I was always able to turn that shit into money. <laughs> <laughs> you need to teach a learning annex class, my friend. <laughs> I used to take the weirdest dreams that I had, you know, when I was back when I was writing Doom Patrol, which was at least meant to be a weird kind of surrealist comic. So I would just take all this stuff, and I was like super straight edge kid. I didn't take coffee, drink anything, but I had the craziest dreams. So one night it would be the Pale Police, who you know you run the world from a secret network of tunnels underneath everything. Just bang it in the Doom Patrol, and you get fifty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so it felt like everything was fair game. Everything that came out of my head could go in that book. Yeah. So how do you? So how do you go from uh, being this kid in Glasgow to when do you start? When do you start writing and submitting, and, and how, do you, how do you even understand that this is something that you can pursue? Well, I, I, in school, I was always into comics. You know, I was a real comic geek when I was a teenager, so I was, I was kind of an isolated kid reading comic books. And I started sending stuff to DC and Marvel early on, but it was really terrible stuff, you know. I did this super undernourished Conan, and they sent me back a letter just saying, I think he needs some exercise. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. It was this spindly, awful Conan. So I was kind of, but I had this dream, you know, and my, my teachers at school said that, you know, there are professional people who do this work, young Mr. Morrison, don't ever imagine you can do anything like this. You should apply for a job in a bank. Ugh. But I couldn't count, you know, I hated arithmetic, so there's no chance of that. But I got involved with uh, a kind of underground comics publisher and started doing my own stuff, and it just built up through working on, on British comics, and then the Americans came knocking. And suddenly I, I got the chance to do Animal Man and the Batman book, Arkham Asylum. And uh, Arkham Asylum was a huge success and it kind of, I got loads of money and just travelled the world and, and went a bit mad. <laughs> and, 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 and what is your version of going mad? Just 
finding yourself on distant beaches on magic mushrooms with people you've never heard of before, <laughs> you know, on, on, on the South Seas and shark gods. And it was, it was just crazy. And, and being in Kathmandu and having insane, uh, I wouldn't call them hallucinations because they were much more interesting, of, of alien contact. You know, honestly, the full 90s experience. Oh, well, it's funny to hear yeah. the 1990s is referred to as like a thing, like the 90s. Because I don't, I don't, I still don't think of it as. Yeah. But remember, it was always the alien head and the X Files. Yeah. Everything yeah. was about this image of the alien trying to break through. So yeah. I kind of think we were all just caught up in some weird between the wars kind of feeling. Yeah. Well, also, you know, it's it, whatever the kind, whatever I, whatever the prevalent um, uh, uh, mythos is what you know whether it be aliens or or vampires or werewolves or whatever yeah. or zombies and it there does there definitely seems to be you know undertones of something that society's trying to deal with that are expressed Always, in like yeah. their you know but i can't i don't what, what was it i i like that the 90s is that first set of time where there's no active threat so it was the first time people could look inward and right, look exactly. these things yeah. i feel like like i've been going back with my girlfriend on the x-files and that's so much you see what mm. that is it's the first time where we could all breathe and then get real internal about what's happening. I think that's where like self-esteem yeah. became a big push, you know. And grunge was such an introspective genre and things like that that all of a sudden uh, America went to therapy and got real. I think you're totally on it. And even the idea of the underground tunnels represented that. Oh yeah. In the X Files, it was constant buried secrets, but the truth is here. It's right here. It's, in, it's underneath our right. feet. Our government is peaceful, so let's see what evil things they're really up to. <laughs> if they were willing to talk about yeah. that stuff, what are they not talking about? Yeah, and then uh, and then to see that uh, you know this romanticized romanticized idea of vampires and this sort of weird STD that is mm. like vampirism, and then looking at zombies is like, oh, we're all afraid that there's going to be some super virus that's going to wipe out the planet, yeah. you know, and this is, you know, this well, is sort this, of a, the erosion of humanity. The zombies are like some kind of consumerism run completely wild. You Absolutely. know, everything has been devoured, but we just keep shambling in the ruins. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's kind of weird that we went from, in, in a couple of generations, I guess, less, from Star Trek, which was this utopian vision of a United Nations sure. spacecraft on an infinitely exciting voyage across all space and time, to you know this multiracial cast stumbling across the ruins of America trying to hide from zombies. Yeah, and it's this weird. What is the what was the the strange curve in the self image of well, media well, America? I think it's the, the hangover of yeah. like, well, what do we do now? Like zombie stuff, mm. like, especially like Walking Dead, is like. We're surviving after everything's gone wrong, and you yeah. just have to keep living. <laughs> well, I think all I think also, you know, when at the time Star Trek came out, it, there was a, the, the it wasn't just it wasn't just science fiction, but the but all of television was this very utopian, yeah, idealized yeah. version of like family and mm. like in everything, and uh, and then in the seventies, uh, you know, the the sort of. In, in rebelling against everything that came before it, then the seventies was very yeah. gritty and real, yeah, and then absolutely. you know, like television shows are like cop, like fucking yeah. cops tumbling around, and sitcoms and were like can, people were dicks. You can see dicks. that direct line from Dirty Harry to Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Absolutely. You know, it's the same. It's, it's tracking right through from those seventies Mean Streets, Death Wish, Second Street kind of movies. Yeah. So I think it's you know it's and then you're talking about grunge. You know, when we're coming out of the eighties, and it was just like. 
idealized like neon Max Headroom rah rah America kind of thing and and fucking um, uh, 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 glam metal. It's the hangover of cocaine and money. Becomes like, <laughs> what have I done? Now I got to take some heroin to come out of this. I got to speed up, slow down, man. <laughs> but the weird thing was when grunge and it was that whole River's Edge thing was happening in America and in Britain we were all hedonistic because it was ecstasy Brit culture pop, and dance music and so there's a real party atmosphere was happening. It was kind of like. The summer of love all over again. Oh, fucking like raves. Like go to raves yeah. and jam out to EMF and yeah. Put, yeah. Bl- blow a rave whistle. <laughs> <laughs> Everything feels great. You take a bunch of ecstasy and just grab onto the fucking yeah. subwoofer. <laughs> that was just it. Sur- surf the sound waves. <laughs> that was our response to th- Margaret Thatcher being finally dismissed from power. You know, we just all had a party. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of parallels do you see between uh, British culture and American <clears throat> culture and how close... How close do you think we actually are? I, I feel like we're actually not close at all. Really? Because so, for me, it feels like we're fused quite tightly, especially because of the internet now. Everyone can communicate across huge distances. And a lot of the stuff... I mean, I've noticed America just becoming more like... Britain at the end of the 90s got really cynical. It was the response to rave culture. <laughs> and it was great. You know, the humour got super dark and the music got darker. Chris Morris. Yeah, that, Chris Morris, that, all that, League of Gentlemen, all that kind of stuff. And I think America just have, has gone that way and taken it much further. You know, people like Danny McBride and those guys. Sure. So there's a kind of everyone's got the same cynical attitude. Now, America used to be a bit more gung-ho, but not, not anymore. <laughs> so in that way, I think we're similar. But, I mean, you could, you could maybe see differences that I wouldn't. So. Well, I don't know. I just, I just see, uh, I, I, think, I think we sound like we're saying a lot of the same things, but I just feel like culturally mm. we don't say, like our, lang- our languages, I feel like, are, as di- almost as different mm. as if we actually had different words for things in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's, it's, more about, it's more about subtext and forms of communication and the types of... You know, I, I, I look at British culture as um, a culture that's a little more repressed, and mm. I see look at American culture as a culture that's a little more in denial about what it is. Yeah, or yeah. doesn't like to admit... Yeah, yeah. You know, Absolutely. like, hey, actually, we are hedonistic. I'm gonna turn this around, man. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. We are hedonistic at the core. Like, that's really we like fucked up shit. Yeah. You know, we like fucking violence and seeing people yeah, get shot yeah. in the face. You know, but it's like, but Sunday's the Lord's Day. You know, it's just like, but but I feel like British culture is much more like. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like stuff pushed down, and then a lot of the humor comes out of the fact of just letting a little bit of the yeah, tension like out of steam that. coming off. You know, yeah. <laughs> and ours is much is much is much louder. But I love, I mean, I love. I, I was, I went to. I went to Edinburgh last year, not for the festival, but just not for the Fringe. But just yeah, you, yeah. you've you did you've done the Fringe before, I've right? I've done a couple of plays on the Fringe back in the day, but you know, I, I, I did two plays, and then there was absolutely no money in the theatre. Right. <laughs> I had to just go back to my comic book career. <laughs> 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 what's your what's your day job? I make comic books. <laughs> I actually do that. Pretty you know, and well. I won I won awards for these things, but honestly, there was just no there was no living. I don't know how people survive writing writing for the theatre. How how have you seen the comic book industry? <laughs> I mean, outside the obvious, you know, of everything shifting to digital and brick and mortar. Yeah. But like, how have you how have you seen the 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 process and everything shift since you started? It just honestly, it's become more more rigid you know i think it's become more commodified and back when i started it was in the 80s in american comics and and people being allowed to do experimental things you know dark knight was very successful watchmen was successful so people like me and neil gaiman were allowed to kind of do things without being edited very heavily 
And that was the way we always imagined doing it. And I've still, fortunately, because I started early, get to do it <laughs> that way. But I have seen much more of a people bowing down to structures, you know, Robert McKee style, three act structures. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. they're learning from cinema and from, and kind of learning back from TV. Because, I mean, I think a lot of the TV, I mean, you, you see this stuff now, it's, it seems to be based on the narrative structure of comics. You know, that monthly long-form storytelling with a right. huge arc. So they kind of copied that from us. But people are, I think people are maybe losing a little bit of what comics can do, the image in the world. It doesn't have to be widescreen panels that mimic a, 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 a movie screen. It doesn't have to be like television. But right now there's a kind of desire to conform to the storytelling techniques of movies and television. And I, I think comics have lost a little bit of their flexibility because of that. Someone asked me why they thought, what they said, why do you think comics, so many comics get adapted? And I said, well, I think now it's part of a, that's just part of a, a, a trend that's happening in entertainment, mm. certainly. But also, I mean, at the when you break it down, a really good comic is a very well-told story with yeah. a very uh, strong foundation because it can't it can't rely on flashy moving images. So you really have to be engrossed in the story and then and have that enhanced mm. by the artwork. And so it's just basically it's just boils down to story. Yeah, but also, but if you look at things like say Frank Miller's and and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's Electra books. Or Dave McKean's Arkham Asylum. These are things that the screen couldn't quite do. Yeah. I mean, you might manage it with weird prag puppets or something, but <laughs> you could never catch that kind of range of technique. Natural Born Killers came a little close to that type of like multimedia just attack on the page. And I think that's the sort of thing that to- comics do amazingly, but that's what's been lost in the, the attempt to mimic the screen. What kind of reaction did you get when you and Dave showed up with <clears throat> Arkham Asylum, like those first pages? Did they know what they were signed up for, or did they look at it and look at you like you were an insane person? Well, no, like I say, they were really open to experimentation. It was a brilliant time. We'd never have got away with it any other time, but the people at DC at that time were wide open to what have you British guys got? You know, this is working for us. That is my so, favorite Batman book, by the way. No, thank you. Thank time. you. Like, but yeah, I mean, people looked at it and go, what the hell is this? Okay, great. We haven't seen anything like this. This this will work. And it, it kind of did. It still sells. And, did you guys all in that sort of in group of British writers know that this was sort of a movement happening? Or did it sort of retrospectively you look back and go, oh, that's weird. That was a movement. Like, yeah, hey, look, look, we, we all, had a movement. Oh, turns out these Rolling Stones were playing around too. It's a very healthy movement. <laughs> Everyone came out of strands from the, in, the, in the 70s. You know, all of us were, were kind of doing weird underground stuff or contributing to fanzines. And you had people like Brendan McCarthy and Peter Milligan and, and Alan Moore was doing his stuff slowly and surely. And people were coming in from the edges. And somehow everything just worked out, like the British invasion in music. Somehow we came right at the time where Frank Miller had knocked the, the walls down and they were looking for more like that, but the American writers and artists just weren't ready to provide. But we were sitting there, you know, we had different influences. We'd come out of punk, so we kind of brought an energy in that I think that appealed to them. And you, you actually, did you, write, did you write for the Doctor Who magazine? I did way back in the day, yeah. I mean, I, I, I brought Jamie back as an old man. <laughs> uh, it's uh, everyone you said had different influences. Who were some of your biggest influences? Well, mostly from outside, because my original thing is I wanted to write television drama because I grew up in an amazing era of British drama, like things like Doctor Who for mm-hmm. kids, you know, but they, they were for everyone. We had some really weird kind of uh, supernatural dramas in the 70s. There was a guy called David Rudkin 
who wrote a play called Pender's Fen, which is one of the most chilling things you'll ever see. I think it's out in DVD again soon, but it's been unseen since the, the 70s. So this guy did a lot of amazing work, and it was stuff that you'd never forget growing up, like images you will never, never, <laughs> ever hope to forget. So I was kind of influenced by, by all of that stuff more than anything else. I, I like J.R. Tolkien, Alan Garner, a bunch of writers. And and that kind of led me into wanting to do comics because it seemed like the people that I loved weren't doing comics, so it was a space for me to do that kind of material in a sure. different format. So I, I, I kind of was just into, like I say, TV. Dennis Potter was the... You know, the great television dramatist in Britain in the 70s and 80s who did Singing Detective? Mm-hmm. He was like, a major influence on me when I was a kid. So, so it was that kind of stuff. I wanted to write for television, but comics then seemed much more easy to get into and much more easy to get away with doing what you wanted and not being edited. And also you saw this kind of... Um Tonally, you saw a space that you felt like wasn't mm. being serviced, and you're like, "Oh, I can take some of these influences of, yeah. you know, the, the Burroughs or whatever, and then yeah. like like infuse something of that into and give you know, the comics and, yeah, a, bit and, of a dimension." Yeah, and later, especially as you say, you know, I'll get into Burroughs and surrealism and and Dada and Cocteau and all that. So that went straight into the Doom Patrol, and it was always it was great because every new assignment you would take on, it would open up a, some treasure chest of <laughs> of information that you could delve into. When you go through stuff in your life. Are you excited to then sit down and try to uh, basically translate it onto a page, or do you need time to kind of process and let it simmer? No, honestly, it's always felt like live performance. So as I said, you know, when my dad dies, it goes straight into All-Star Superman because that's what I'm writing. You know, when my mother dies, it goes into Batman. It's when I, you know, I meet Kristen, it goes into Marvel Boy. So everything kind of gets translated immediately into the comic stories. And I found that's what keeps it fresh because there's always something going on in your life and there's always something to write about that can be made into, like I say, these uh, Paul Bunyan-style adventures. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... And I think that's I think that's what people pick up on as part of, you know, the experience of any kind of art is feeling that there's something really authentic and human happening as opposed to just, oh, comics. So that's where that one guy flies and then he can punch the rock, he can punch the asteroid and then everyone's fine as opposed (laughs) to like really, you know, you can tell when you see something in any medium that like, oh, there's something, someone was going through something with this or there's something out there. I can't even put my finger on it, but it just feels like it has a little bit more dimension. Yeah, yeah. And we all feel the same thing. So I think it's quite easy to communicate these feelings if you're just a bit honest about it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, I love that moment in Animal Man where you come into the comic and just admit mm-hmm. you don't know where this is going. <laughs> and you're sorry that it's been struggling. So you had to take yeah. some drastic <clears throat> measures. No, exactly. So I think you have to just be honest on the page and hopefully it'll communicate because everyone goes through these these human experiences. And if you can put it into that format, I mean, that's why I say I love comics. It doesn't have to be real. It doesn't have to be, you have to be a billionaire to enjoy what it's like to be Batman. Batman fights for our dignity or whatever. You know, the story should always be a, more like music. It arouses a feeling rather than a, a literal idea. Do you feel that you understand yourself better through the mirror of... Batman, Animal Man, Superman, like as you're throwing all this stuff onto the page, do you read it and you go, oh yeah, I guess I just learned something about myself. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was doing that All-Star Superman book, I was trying to think my mind into what would Superman be like. And no, he's a really good guy and I'm not going to play into the notion of, of he's, he's, he's vulnerable in any way. I wanted to think myself into the level of a god. 
and and see if he could still make that human. So yeah, I mean, it was like meditating on Buddha every day. Was, <laughs> I felt really saintly, you know. I was really, you know, I was kindly towards all living things. But those days have passed now. I've gone back to my old mean self. <laughs> with Superman, what's the what's the uh, what's the position on nature nurture with Superman? What do you think? I, I go nurture. Like, you think so? Yeah, oh, I think yeah. that without Ma and Pa Kent, he is uh, just a god without a direction. Yeah. You don't think that there's something that they infused in the crystals that, that Jarrell gave him? That's that... his humanity. They represent who he is. Well, see, I'm going to be a pain in the ass. Oh, I love this. <laughs> and I say that basically Superman, because he's a Kryptonian, has inherited this kind of idea of non-dual thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's why Superman would never save one life over another. He, he must save both. So for him, nature and nurture are intrinsic he couldn't have been Superman without either of those things intertwining and playing off each other so for him he sees both sides of the coin that's how he works I changed my vote to that (laughs) (laughs) that's a slightly better answer from the guy who controls Superman like a puppet (laughs) do you when when you first when you first take on uh, when you first take on a new character do you spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. making notes figuring out like where like do you mold him before you start writing or do you start writing no, I totally, but with Batman, I really, I read a ton of Batman stuff that I'd loved, and I went right back from to the early days, 1939 Batman stuff, right through the goofy 50s stuff, and it was the 50s stuff that really caught my attention, because everyone had ignored it for decades and said it was too dumb to exist in Batman's continuity, so I kind of thought, well, what state was Batman's mind in that he was experiencing the world like this, you know, weird fractured aliens and giant testicles, <laughs> 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 the most bizarre imagery. And so as I, yeah, I researched it and I, I thought I'll do 15 issues and then suddenly I'm researching it more and I thought, no, this is really fascinating, the idea of what if, what if every one of these contradictory stories was a year in Bruce Wayne's life and this guy had actually lived this entire history and suddenly it got really exciting, you know, the notion that in, when he was 24 years old it was the Batman TV show. And him and Robin had inhaled so much fear gas and laughing gas <laughs> that they were, they, they were just hallucinating wildly and making jokes and running, <laughs> running about in daytime. <laughs> but then you get like five years later, Batman's kind of snapping out of it. The come down has happened and he's looking and Robin's a bit too old for this shit. So Robin suddenly goes off to university, you know, like he did in the early 70s Batman comics and they, they grounded it. So I thought, okay, this is Batman in the come down. And he gets the pointed ears and I'm going back to my roots going, get the kid out of here. And suddenly he gets sexy and he meets Talia and Raj Al Ghul. And the whole thing fit as this weird young man's biography where he'd been through every one of these stages from the, the savage young kind of pulp vigilante to the, the smiling Gotham cop to the, this mad television version. That's really, that's a, that's a great idea that having been passed through all these different hands, they were actually yeah. giving him a life. Exactly. Like yeah. And so as as time had gone on and through the nineties, everything got darker and darker. You know, Robin gets beaten to death with a crowbar and then he gets a new Robin, but then Gotham City falls down in an earthquake, then everyone gets the plague, then Batman's got his back broken. So it was this accelerating horror. And when I took Batman on, it was just like I want to deal with a guy who's just how do you how do you deal with that? That would break the, any man's back. <laughs> so my Batman was kind of going through this big initiation purge kind of ritual to to cure himself of his own history. <laughs> wow! And, and to do that, he had to lose his mind, you know, and become a different kind of Batman. I mean, it, it's sort of uh, with any type of serialized content, it seems like well, 
you kind of go along and you have one story mm-hmm. arc and then at the end of that story arc that's got to be like the craziest thing that he's ever seen because the reader needs to be mm-hmm. engaged and they need to really feel that there's a lot at stake and it's like okay then he solves that now here's the next crazy and it's just yeah, like yeah. at a certain point you're in this kind of tower of craziness that mm-hmm. is probably so and even though it's a comic and it's you know but it's so implausible yeah. at what point do you just go fuck it and then just start over <laughs> or go to a different point in his life well, I guess that's what they did eventually. That's what Scott Snyder's done with Batman and start from scratch. But I just felt I had to deal with that towering weight of <laughs> history. And, but there were so many interesting gaps in it. That's what made it fun. Like I found, the, you know, there's a story where Batman has, uh, and Talia have sex and a baby appears. And so I thought, well, let's tell a story about a baby. They used to do Bat-Baby, Bat-Boy stories in the 50s. So it kind of worked out that suddenly Batman had a son. And that allowed it to, to, to change gears a little bit as well. So we just kept doing twists and Batman's suddenly, he's dead, Batman R.I.P. But really he's back in time. But Robin takes over as Batman and, and Batman's evil young son is a new Robin, new dynamic. So I just kept trying to turn the gears on it. I mean, it really is just, it's, it's a con- the continuing soap opera of these characters and yeah. how much can you twist them inward and stretch them. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's, I feel like, I see two different styles of writing a lot, whether it be comics or film and television, where it's like they can either they can either have the character, the protagonist, like affecting the rest of the mm. world, or they can have the rest of the world just punch the protagonist in the face and then just yeah. let him go and then just see how he reacts to that. <laughs> Do you have a preference? I think they both work in their own way, but you know, but like I say, with Batman, it seemed really what excited me was just making that entire history the biography of one guy, <laughs> and it illuminated them in so many ways because he's so contradictory, just like a person. Yeah, and I think it really made him real. It's, you know, sometimes he was this laughing fiend or Frank Miller kind of thing. Sometimes he was the sober world's greatest detective, but it was all one man. It's, it made him kind of more human. So what? What do you still? I mean, first of all. Can you explain to me? Uh, I, I know this is a tremendous honor, but mm. the uh, the the medal of the British Empire. Yeah, it's just it's something that they, basically somebody nominates you for this, and uh, I've no idea who it was. And it's for your contributions to whatever field of the arts or society you're involved in, and and they give you this little medal, <laughs> like you, well, you fought in World War One, you know, and <laughs> you don't get anything. I think there may be something like I'm allowed to drive cattle across London Bridge. Oh, finally! Yeah, I mean it's it's it's, it's important stuff, or like you know, my my serfs don't have to wear you know <laughs> van braces or some other <laughs> item of medieval <laughs> armor. But it's not like you can never be imprisoned or anything. You know, no, if that. only if now, that would be a worth having. Honestly, now, yeah. I, could, I could pull this medal out and just say, I, I've just killed Her Majesty the Queen. You can never imprison. Yeah. It is. You you gave me this. This is your fault. <laughs> so it's more a kind of thing. It's it's, it's like it's, it's some some recognition of your work. And I just thought my work has barely ever been recognised in, in my home co- my home country. So it was it was kind of I thought it was quite nice. Uh, how is it now in in Scotland? Is it has has it has it sort of has it caught on more the the comic culture and or, or are they still somewhat. No, it's always it's always been big. Like I say, the, the comics came in via the the U.S. Uh, sailors and and during the Cold War, and then also we we had our own homegrown comics industry in the, the name of DC Thompson, who had this big newspaper and comic publisher in Dundee in Scotland. So we all read their comics growing up. So the the culture has always been pretty vibrant. And people like, you know, like Mark Miller or, or Frank Quitely, all these guys are still working there. There's a, there's a pretty big and interesting and, and diverse comics culture in Scotland. How do you feel that your culture has uh, influenced, like what, 
to someone who didn't know me, they wouldn't recognize. But when you read your work, are there things you can point out and you go, "That's Scottish." I can I know that that's like a, that's yeah. a Scottish ideal, or that's something that I. That... I, I guess it's all Scottish, you know. I mean, even when I do American characters, they kind of talk like Scottish guys. You know, when <laughs> I, when I was writing the New Jersey mobsters in in the comic Happy, it was I was really just writing them as Glasgow guys, and every second word was a, was a cuss word. You know, everything they said was punctuated by swearing, and that's how people talk in Glasgow. But I don't really know if that's exactly how they talk in New Jersey, but I figured it would translate quite well. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think everyone, even Bruce Wayne, who I was trying to capture that East Coast aristocratic voice, still says things that sound a bit like a Glasgow East End thug. <laughs> <laughs> and you can never get it out. I mean, I think that what I think we bring is a kind of just a slightly blacker humour and a slight, but there's also a love of it. You know, it's that love hate thing of, of the Americans, the base, the nuclear target, but the comics. It's a love hate thing with the superheroes. Yeah. What, uh, how do you feel like you've been influenced by American culture? Just in, in a, a very big way. I mean, we grew up in American TV, grew up in American comics, so it wasn't the only thing we were influenced by, but Star Trek was as big a thing for me as Doctor Who was. You know, I was obsessed with Star Trek as a kid, and I made these, like, gold stick-on spock ears that I used to wear to school. So I was seriously <laughs> into it. My mother actually got my, my hair cut like Mr. Spock because she fell in love with Leonard Nimoy. Oh. And, yeah, I finally got to meet him, and I was on my knees, and I was just, honestly, it was, like, it, it was like meeting some kind of uh, Polynesian deity. When did you meet him? A few years ago on My Chemical Romance show backstage and he was there in a leather jacket and he just looked fantastic, you know, he was like, <laughs> he was he was just like carved out of rock, he was fantastic and I was kind of on my knees saying my, my mother wanted me to grow up to be you, I'm, I'm sorry I failed Mr <laughs> Nemo. <laughs> There's only one Nemoy though, there's only one Nemoy. Why there was, can why be was, only one Nemoy. Why was Leonard at a, at a My Chemical Romance show? Does Gerard know him? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was uh, his, his niece or so, some, some uh, younger relative brought him along. Oh, wow. I... I He's. It would be nice to hear him talk about, and, and I'm sure that there, I'm sure there are extensive interviews somewhere. But to hear him talk about his mm. art, his photography, yeah, which is, I, I got to go to his house once because a friend of mine was interviewing him, and I just came and, and watched. And they talked about Star Trek pretty much the whole time, but I was just looking around and like his walls are covered with this amazing mm. photography. That's right. Yeah, I remember he had books with poetry in them as well. He did this like super romantic kind of gooey poetry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's like you know, there's it's just it's just weird. It was just weird being in Leonard Nimoy's study and just seeing pictures of uh, uh, monochromatic tits. <laughs> it was done in a completely logical manner. Very logical, yeah. The tits were arranged in a manner that yeah. would be. Um, it was the Fibonacci efficient. sequence, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I feel like that's. So, oh man, now that has to happen. Totally has to happen. Do you? Uh, do you? I know you said you set out to be a television writer. Do you? Do you still like um, taking things and, and adapting them for film and television, or is that is that not as gratifying? Yeah, I mean, I've done a bunch of stuff, but it's, it's Hollywood and the, the mills grind exceedingly slow, as they say. Yeah, and yeah, there's a lot of things I've been trying and doing, and things I've sold like We Three screenplay, but it takes so long; nothing has ever come to fruition. So I, I much prefer comics because they're so immediate. I think people would be mostly heartbroken if they if they were to see a list of all of the properties that were just in permanent limbo in development that yeah. some, you know, because essentially what happens is a studio hears that something's really hot and mm. so they just stomp on it and kill it so no one else can take mm. it. 
And either they don't have plans for it or the executive that brought it in goes away and the new executive doesn't want to touch it. And things just fuck fester there yeah. for ages. So ages. For, for me, it was just Hollywood. It's like a, a hobby. We know we've got a place here and we've got lots of friends here. I, I love it. I think it's, it's a great art scene in Hollywood. And uh, playing with the movies has just taught me a lot of tricks, which I didn't know before. So it's been fun. You know, I like that whole idea of learning different ways of doing things. I, I think uh, Los Angeles and Scotland could not be more diametrically opposite. And- they couldn't, maybe, and that's why we like it so much. You know, I mean, the East Coast, I like, I like New York, but it's too much like Glasgow. Glasgow's like little New York. Yeah. You know? And all the bands want to be the Velvet Underground. And it's, the, <laughs> it's got the same kind of grid structure in the streets, but LA's very, very different. So I, we kind of love it here. Excellent. Is there anything currently right now that you are working on that you don't people don't know about or is there anything you want to talk about? Or Well, know? the big kind of thing obviously i'm doing this multiversity series yeah. at dc which i've been working on for eight years now it's ridiculous but it's finally coming out it feels like this is my james joy's kind of <laughs> for the dc universe and then we just released a map at the weekend at comic-con this map of the entire multiverse which, oh my God. which tells you where the gods live everything you know it was ridiculous it was designed by i kind of did an initial sketch and then ryan hughes the the graphic designer did this most amazing we, we just need a blacklight version. This is going to be in stone, <laughs> stoner bed set walls from, for the rest of the decade. So it's a, it's a kind of beautiful thing, and we're, we're exploring all of DC's infinite Earths, you know, all the kind of what-ifs. Like, what if there was a Nazi Superman? What would he be like 60 years after World War II? Oh, my God. And super guilty about his part and what happened, you know? What if there was a world where all the superheroes are reversed? So you've got Superwoman and Batwoman and Wonder Man. And <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of looking at all these different kind of alternative versions of DC. And I just had a great time doing it. But it's been eight years, honestly. It's like one of those records that's produced to within an inch of its life. I'm, I'm kind oh of my God. excited to finally have it come out. And you know that there are people out there that are... are dying to look at it to see if they can poke holes in it nope no no this isn't nope 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 like to me to me sort of being in charge of that much canon all clashing together would feel like such a tremendous responsibility the weight of it kind of makes my stomach hurt a no, little bit no I mean, honestly we, we, we took it on our shoulders with a smile and people have actually been freaking out about this map I mean the, the readers are honestly they're identifying every single little image Ryan drew every world as having some significance to the people who live on it so if it's a, a Frank Miller world it's done in Frank's trademark oh, chair oscuro shading the the Soviet world's got the hammer and sickle on it. So honestly, the the, the readers have been going mental over this thing. It's, it's so you great. looked at Seven Soldiers and were like, not complicated enough. Yeah, well, we, we thought we, we wanted to encompass the entirety of the multiverse <laughs> and, and, and all human thought out to poor thought doesn't even exist. So yeah, it was, it was pretty ambitious. <laughs> but the, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's also linear. The idea is that each one follows the one before, and, and but each one also functions on its own. They're all 40-page stories. They're individual stories. You could read one and not have to read the rest. But if you read them all, you get the full spank. Wow. So do you feel like that's, do you feel like, yeah, that's the big project? Or do you think like, and now next for my next trick? <laughs> no, honestly, right now that felt like, okay, I've, I've said everything. The one thing I'm still doing is, is this Wonder Woman uh, graphic novel. It's 120 pages with the artist Yannick Paquette. And once we do that, I mean, Wonder Woman is like a whole new way of telling stories. It was really weird because I made it, I wanted it to be for girls. So I I told it not like a boy's adventure story. And that kind of made me think about new ways of doing stuff. So, but Multiversity feels like the last big DC project for a moment, at least. (laughs) So you, so you sort of, I mean, it seems like you, you try to balance with 
stuff that you feel like you already know versus, you know, like how do you continue to challenge yourself as a, how do you continue to challenge yourself mm-hmm. as, a, as a writer? Yeah, and, and like, as I say, alongside that, I've, I've got a lot of new, there's a book Annihilator come out from Legendary with, mm-hmm. with Fraser Irvin, which I'm really excited about, and that's her own creation. And there's Nameless, which is a horror story with, with Chris Burnham, who did Batman with me. So we're doing that for Image. So I'm doing all of these, a lot of these new books coming out alongside the DC stuff as well. I think it's the best way to do things. Excellent. And then are you going to be in town for a little while, or are you heading back? back? We're in town for another week and a bit, and then back to Scotland for a little bit, and then back here when the winter starts to bite. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that... Uh, well, for us, winter is like... It's like it's like 58 degrees. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we have tell to... Me we know. We go back home and winter means in your living room watching TV and the steam coming out of your mouth, <laughs> and we're wearing Eskimo coats, <laughs> Inuit quotes, sorry. But uh, yeah, that's what it's like back home. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad that we were actually able to, because I and we we've been trying to do this for a while, and our schedules have been no, it was been, great. It was, been, it was, it was really good fun. I super crazy. It. Oh my god, please! And when you're when you're back, come back and hang out. I, I normally we a lot of times we do the podcast at Meltdown, which is really fun. Yeah, because you, you know we're just in this little <laughs> this little lookout tower above the comic book here, but now we're at the the TV studio, so it's not. I'm so I'm so I'm sorry that we don't have really exciting uh, background stuff for you that you can just go down and no no by the magic of words I was transported oh good good. (laughs) (laughs) well it's good to see you Grant are you on are you on are you on Twitter kind of honestly I post something maybe every three months and it sounds like someone who's just woken up from a coma and and then gone back to sleep I just just can't stay on top of that stuff I mean I wish I could be more involved but I I, I get too busy working you know I think it's more important that you continue working than you spend a lot of time so do my employers social media Uh, excellent what is are you just is it Grant Morrison on Twitter it is okay great Grant Morrison excellent Uh, it's good to see you man thank you you so much yeah it was great fun listen you have an amazing uh, your voice is amazing and we say enjoy your burrito at the end of the podcast Mm -hmm. will you please say it to sign us off enjoy a burrito perfect (laughs) (laughs) fantastic thank you so much that was great fun that was wonderful (laughs) now leaving nerdist.com enjoy your burrito Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.